Hi everyone, welcome to China in the Caribbean, a podcast about the growing economic, social and political relations of China in the Caribbean. Today I'll be talking with Alicia Nichols. She's an expert in Caribbean trade law and policy. She's a researcher at the Sridhar Ramphal Center of International Trade Law at the University of the West Indies in Barbados. And we have a wide discussion about the potential of a Sino-Caribbean trade agreement and why exactly that may not be the best policy agenda for our Caribbean governments. We also go some more details about the current network of trade systems in the Caribbean. I had a great time chatting with Alicia and I really hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi Alicia, thanks so much for having this conversation today. And thank you Rashid for the invitation, really looking forward to the discussion. Great, so let's just jump in. So back in 2003, Antigua Barbuda, a Caribbean country, brought a case against the U.S. in the WTO and they won the case and the WTO awarded damages to Antigua but to this day the US refused to pay any money to Antigua although the actual WTO case proved that the discriminatory practices in the US trade policy significantly damaged Antigua's economy. Now when I read that case to me that seems like a warning to how the Caribbean has to treat their relationship with large powers given this very significant power asymmetry. But it doesn't seem like Caribbean leaders think about that case mm-hmm. much when they talk about closer interactions with China. So given small size is the way how Caribbean states are and we have to use multilateral systems. Does this give you any pause to think the actual multilateral system does it actually serve Caribbean states that well? Okay, sure. That's a good question. And the for those listeners not familiar with the case, just to sum it up briefly, the Antigua U.S. gambling case was basically concerning some of the measures that the U.S. had applied which affected Antigua's ability to supply gambling and betting services to the U.S. market cross-border, so online. And what Antigua and Barbuda was arguing was that these measures were discriminatory and therefore inconsistent with the U.S.'s obligations under the various WTO treaties. Antigua and Barbuda won its case both at the panel level, which is the first instance of the WTO dispute settlement, and then also at the appellate level, Antigua also won there as well. But up until this day, as far as I'm aware, there's been really no real resolution of it. I think that the main issue, and I do agree with you, Rashi, that it shows that even though you may have, as a small state, the ability and the right to have your day in court under the rules-based multilateral trading system, it doesn't guarantee compliance. Why? Because at the end of the day, 
under international law, there's really nothing you can do to compel states, large states, that is, to follow the rules. It's really up to them to follow the rules. So if you relate it to the whole China thing, however, I think that it benefits us in that because we see the need for WTO reform and China also has publicly expressed its desire to, to work in reforming the WTO system, we at least have an ally there in terms of the need to not only reform the WTO, but also the WTO's dispute settlement system. Sure, I get how China could be an ally in this situation, but given that China also has its own explicit interests, is it at all valid to think that they would be as willing to follow rule-based orders as the U.S., give even all the exceptions to the rule-based order that the U.S. refused to follow, for example, in the Antigua-Barbuda gambling case. So I use that as an indicator in terms of compliance with WTO rules, then it shows you that the U.S. has not always complied with its um, obligations under the WTO. And some other states haven't as well, as we know. In terms of China now, again, China also has been taken to the WTO and vice versa. I don't think that it has been any more than the U.S., more non-compliant than the U.S. in terms of the WTO. I think that our main engagement with China right now will remain bilateral for some time in terms of cooperation, in terms of trade, in terms of the... I, I also think that because of the fact that there's been greater engagement and interest by China in the region, that bilateral cooperation will continue, but also multilateral to some extent on the areas where we think China could be a useful voice to help advance our causes. So continuing along this problem of trade, concept of trade here in the Caribbean and China, most of the current discussion, I think, is about trade, the potential of trade between two regions. Given that Caribbean is so small, China's market is so large, then that's a match made in heaven. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if that's actually practical. So do you think it's actually feasible for Caribbean to have a trade mm-hmm. agreement with China? And even if it is feasible, mm-hmm. is it actually very beneficial? That's a good question, Rashid. And let me first say it from the outset that I think that CARICOM China FDA is unlikely at this stage. Because as we know, within CARICOM, we have a heterogeneous approach to the whole recognition issue. So obviously, from a political standpoint, it is unlikely there would be a CARICOM China FDA. But that being said, CARICOMs, as we know, China's engagement with the region has been predominantly bilateral. So individual countries have bilateral investment treaties with China. So there are some treaties that countries have bilaterally with China, although there aren't market access opening treaties in terms of the bilateral cooperation agreements. Another issue is that even if we were to be on the same page with regard to the recognition issue, I'm not sure to what extent it would be useful to have a CARICOM China FDA at this point in time. Reason being that a trade agreement opens up market access, but it does not guarantee market penetration. We know this because China's, sorry, CARICOM's existing trade agreements are already 
underutilized. But I will say that if indeed there is some notion to have such an agreement, it should be private sector-led and there should be a lot of stakeholder um, consultation. Okay, so we definitely have to dive into that some more. But I like how you preempted me when you said CARICOM, Mm -hmm. not Caribbean, because that is an important point. One of the frustrations I have to talk about Caribbean-China relations is that which Caribbean are you talking about? So to clarify some of this baseline Mm -hmm. information, could you give a brief overview of what CARICOM is? Sure. And CARICOM is the Caribbean community, and it was established in 1973 by the Treaty of Chagaramas, and it comprises 15 member states, predominantly of the English-speaking Caribbean. But there are also two member states which are not English-speaking. So you have Haiti, which is Francophone, and then you have Suriname, which is Dutch-speaking. And it also includes one dependent territory, which is Montserrat, which is dependency of the UK. There are also five associate members, which are British overseas territories. And basically what CARICOM is that it's a common market. There is That means that there's supposed to be free movement of goods and skilled nationals and capital. This is under the CSME, the CARICOM Single Market and Economy, which was established by the Revised Treaty of Chagaramas. And then this also allows... So basically, it would turn what would be disparate states into one common market. So products coming out, coming from outside of the region into the region, of course, will be charged according to the common external tariff rate, whereas products of community origin will not be charged duties. But lastly, what I also want to say is that CARICOM is more than a common market. Economic integration is only one pillar of CARICOM. There's also foreign policy coordination, human and social development and security. So there's a lot of cooperation among CARICOM states in a wide area, a wide array of areas in terms of development. But it's not CARICOM alone. We have the OECS, we have the OAS, we have CARIFORUM, and so on. So there are a whole bunch of groups that complicate how we do policy coordination and trade coordination. So could you highlight some of those ones even before we go deeper into the conversation as well? So for our listening audience who might not necessarily be from the Caribbean, there's also the grouping called the OECS, which is the Organization of Eastern Caribbean States. Now, this is a subgrouping of countries within CARICOM. They were established in 1981 via the Treaty of Basse-Terre, and that was later amended by the Revised Treaty of Basse-Terre in 2010. And they have a much deeper level of integration than CARICOM. So they have full free movement of people and goods, for example. They have their own economic union. So they have their own Eastern Caribbean Central Bank, Eastern Caribbean Dollar, they also have joint OECS missions, for example, diplomatic missions is what, is what I mean. So, example, in Geneva and Brussels. And they also have two, two of their associate members are actually French-speaking, Martinique and Guadeloupe, but the majority of, well, all the others are English-speaking Caribbean countries. In terms of the other groups you mentioned, the groupings you mentioned, so... 
Cariform, ACS, OAS. Those are mainly, well, Cariform, that is the Caribbean form of what was formerly known as the ACP, Africa, Caribbean, Pacific States, which is now the Organization of African, Caribbean, and Pacific States. And this is basically CARICOM plus the Dominican Republic. So that's why the CARIFORUM EU EPA is called that, because it's CARICOM plus the Dominican Republic. You also have ACS, which is the Association of Caribbean States. That is primarily, that is an intergovernmental organization, again, 35 members, which comprises independent states and dependent states in the wider Caribbean. And they have, their mandate includes a lot of dialogue around five key areas. So preservation of the Caribbean Sea, sustainable tourism, trade and economic external relations, natural disasters, transport, then you have the OAS, which again is a hemispheric intergovernmental organization, which is based in Washington, D.C. And that's a lot bigger. That would include like the U.S., etc. And again, that is mainly focused on more political things. So democracy, human rights, security and development. Yeah, I think that's a good survey of where we stand in the region when it comes to our groupings. So let's now go into the trade arrangements. Currently, I think CARICOM has a few. We have the CARICOM-Cuba agreement. We have the CARIFORUM-EU agreement. I think the CARICOM-UK agreement. I'm not sure if the Caribbean Basin, the Caribbean Basin Initiative Agreement with the U.S. counts as a trade arrangement. So where do we stand right now when it comes to trade? As you rightly said, we have agreements and most of them are what you call partial scope agreements. These are agreements that are not full FTAs, rather full free trade agreements. These are agreements that, generally speaking, mostly focus on either goods or they are limited in terms of the coverage of sectors that are included. So we have that with Venezuela, Colombia, Costa Rica, Cuba, Dominican Republic. As you rightly said, we have a full FTA with CARIFORM, the CARIFORM EU. That's our economic partnership agreement. That is our first FTA with a developed country partner. We also have the CARIFORM UK EPA, which is meant to preserve market access for CARIFORM countries once the UK has completely exited the EU. Now, you mentioned the Caribbean Basin Initiative and CARICAN. Those are not trade agreements, but non-reciprocal preferential access arrangements to the U.S. market in the case of the Caribbean Basin Initiative and to the Canadian market in the case of CARICAN. So what they do is that while we do not have to extend preferential market access to goods coming from the U.S. or Canada, they provide market access for our goods only and for the majority of goods. Another thing, so services aren't con- aren't included in, in that at all. And as you would know, the majority of our countries now are mainly services economies. Lastly, we also have individual con- CARICOM countries that do have agreements mainly partial scope agreements again. So this has an agreement with Guatemala. Guyana has one with China. And then there's also one that was signed recently between Trinidad and Chile. Okay, so that's a good baseline. 
for what currently exists in CARICOM. So you mentioned earlier in the conversation that it's, even if we can get a trade agreement between CARICOM and China, it perhaps isn't the case that the trade agreement actually lead to much economic to much growth mm-hmm. in Caribbean exports and activity inside Chinese markets. So again, given we have these baseline, we have some of baseline to kind of make analysis from, we have these this network of trade agreements. So could you give some indication on how these agreements have performed? Then has CARICOM actually benefited much from these agreements with partners that we already know for quite a long time, for example? Okay, sure. The thing is that it there have been two reviews done so far. One, the first review was in 2014, and it found that obviously a lot of the benefits that were supposed to accrue under the agreement had been muted, and there were several reasons given for this. One, because naturally, when the agreement, because the agreement is not. It's being provisionally applied at the moment. Another thing is that at the time when it was concluded, we were pretty much going into a recession. The global economy was going into um, the global financial crisis. So that had its impact. Another thing is in terms of some of the supporting infrastructure that needed to be set up. So in terms of contact points, um, and then some other things, the conclusion of mutual recognition agreements, which of course will allow for like certain trading services, etc., were not concluded at the time, and I still think have not yet been concluded. So that of course has an impact. Another thing is in terms of capacity of our firms. Many of our firms are not able to, in many cases, make use of the market access uh, provided for them, and then of course there issues in terms of capacity at the state end. For example, because of our ratings in terms of our labs, we are not able to export poultry to the EU. So there are several reasons why the agreement has been underutilized. The only country really that has been benefiting from the agreement so far will probably be the Dominican Republic. I know that there has been a review that was started in 2019. I don't know what the findings were, but I do remember seeing an article, I think last week, where they were saying that, again, the level of utilization has been disappointing and uneven. But beyond that, I don't know the nitty gritty of how much would have improved since the 2014 evaluation. It does seem to me like when we get more and more data on these trade agreements, I think that the benefit of them would be lackluster at best. But to go back to something you said earlier in our conversation, another reason for the frustration of any potential trade agreement with China, even if it was potentially beneficial, it probably couldn't happen because of the one China policy split in CARICOM. So currently five of Taiwan's 15 allies are in CARICOM. But the thing about it that's interesting to me is also a split in terms of Venezuela. Could you give a brief highlight of what the Venezuela split is 
now in CARICOM? Okay, so in terms of the recognition of Juan Guaido as the president of Venezuela, he declared himself to be president of Venezuela. And we do know that the current U.S. administration recognizes him as the president of Venezuela. But we do know the incumbent right now is Nicolas Maduro. But at the OAS, in terms of voting, some CARICOM countries voted to recognize others didn't. And I think that I think that has been a major foreign policy issue and difference among the region. I must say though that the RTC only requires coordination. It doesn't take the extra step and says that you have to come to a common position. So th- that's the argument that a lot of people make. That, yeah, you coordinate your foreign policy by talking to each other, but at the end of the day, you're still sovereign states. And if you go off and do your own thing, that's what happened. Yeah, just to clarify something quickly, when you mention RTC, you're referring to the revised Treaty of Shagaramas that established the CARICOM group that we're talking about. And in Article 6 of the RTC, there is no requirement at all for countries to completely agree on foreign policy. And that's why, even if you have the CARICOM established, countries can have very dramatically different opinions and recognition standards for allies. Yeah, so I think that similar to Venezuela, countries with regard to the recognition of ROC or PRC, Countries are going to vote according to their own national interests and what are they getting out of it? Yeah, so given the CARICOM countries are still pretty insular, is there any particular country that you would say have a, let's say, pretty good trade policy? So out of all the countries, I would say that Jamaica has been the most proactive. And then not only that, they also have a single window for persons interested in getting trade data and trade information from Jamaica. And they've also been doing extremely well in terms of their reforms. So they're actually the number one right English-speaking Caribbean country on the World Bank's Ease of Doing Business Index. And that's largely because of the reforms that they have been doing. Is this like a recent change a recent improvement, or were they on top of your books for some time now? I think that because of the reforms that they have had to do, because of the structural adjustment programs that they've been under, particularly uh, within the most recent years, that it has really, I think, made it imperative for them to really have to get out there and promote their brand and to ensure that they have transparency and these sorts of things to ensure that they're a attractive investment destination. So I think that in many ways, the structural adjustment reforms that they've had to do have helped them as well. Yeah, Brands Jamaica is definitely impressive. I think it's the only thing most people know about the Caribbean, Jamaica. So <laughs> thank you, Alicia, for having this chat today. It was really fun. And thank you, Rashid. Greatly appreciate it. Loved it. Mm-hmm. Great. So before we go, could you share how anyone can get into contact with you? They could follow me on Twitter at Lisi Law, L-A-C-Y-L-A-W. 
and they can also follow my blog Caribbean Trade Law and Development at www.caribbeantradelaw.com Evil like a fall when we try to Ethiopia. Believing from down, cause them life not easy, but uh, even one time.